Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown, a look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. The program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com. Some of the other problems with PPPs is it's an adversarial relationship. And so when the government puts a project together, it's basically trying to maximize the public benefit for dollar. What a PPP is trying to do, it's trying to maximize the profit for its investors. And if there are any savings, then they basically go to the investor. If there's a failure, then the government is always the ultimate person who's on the hook. So then they're the ones who are responsible if the PPP fails. What's a PPP, you ask? It's a public-private partnership. And it's yet another example of how the public can get screwed out of a substantial amount of money by getting in bed with private capital. We might otherwise rename the platform Public-Private Paradox because in public infrastructure financing, the private party gets the profits and the public holds the bag. Hello, and welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. I'm Walt McCree of the Public Banking Institute, and today we're going to take a deep dive into the pressing matter of our local and national infrastructure needs and how we intend to pay for them. Ellen's two guests today, Dr. Alfeca Mutardi and Dr. Stephen Hubbard, are economists and policy experts working together with the National Infrastructure Bank Coalition to squarely address the real infrastructure needs now estimated to range from 5 to $10 trillion in cost. How will we pay for that? That's the subject of today's discussion. Now, one typical approach used by governments is to create PPPs, public-private partnerships, which bring in private money to finance the projects along with some government funds. And as you'll hear in our discussion, expose the public to an unnecessarily high cost for financing. Typical profit ranges for public-private partnerships are from 10 to 15 percent internationally. Alternatively, the genius of the new National Infrastructure Bank legislation would require no new government spending and would not add to the national deficit by employing the funding principles that were used in FDR's Reconstruction Finance Corporation. Afeka Mutardi has worked with the IMF for about 25 years, and Stephen Hubbard is an expert on PPPs. They'll make the choices before us very clear. And of course, the pressure to do so is urgent, given the deterioration of our infrastructure. As you probably know, the matter is being discussed in Congress right now, and presenting this National Infrastructure Bank Coalition idea would seem to be a winning approach. Let's join Ellen and our guests now to get grounded in this critical public discussion. It's 
my pleasure to be speaking again with Alfeca Muitardi and to be speaking for the first time with Dr. Stephen Hubbard. Uh, both are pillars of the National Infrastructure Bank Coalition. And uh, Alfeca was uh, worked for, she's a macroeconomist who worked for uh, 25 years for the International Monetary Fund. And uh, Dr. Hubbard is worked for 29 years for the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California and uh, specialized in infrastructure and uh, water management and other things of relevance to us. So Alfeca, we, we were pleased to interview you earlier on the National Infrastructure Bill. I know a new bill has been was filed in May, I think, HR 3339. So we've already kind of got the, the vision of what the bill is. But for people that didn't hear that interview, I wonder if you could just give us sort of a capsule summary of what it is. And we'll get into how it's different from the other proposals. Thanks very much. Uh, as you said, we have a bill reintroduced, HR 3339. And what it would do would be to create a $5 trillion public bank to lend for infrastructure projects all across the country. The reason we need a public bank is because we simply have not been able to finance infrastructure through the federal budget or through state and local budgets. Our, our infrastructure spending has fallen way off. For example, in the 1960s, we used to spend 4% uh, of GDP of gross domestic product on infrastructure investment. Today, it's only 2.4%. And this bank actually operates like four successful banks we've had in our nation's past, starting with the first one right after the Revolutionary War and then ending with uh, one during the, uh, the, the New Deal. Everybody knows about the New Deal, but they don't know the critical role that the uh, Reconstruction Finance Corporation had in underwriting and financing everything that helped to get us out of the Great Depression and win World War II. So this bank, just to quickly recap from what I presented on our last uh, discussion, works just like a commercial bank. It gives out loans only for infrastructure, but it works like a commercial bank. So it is capitalized by going to the private sector and asking, would investors like to invest in their treasury holdings to capitalize the bank? And then uh, it gives out loans just like a commercial bank, takes in deposits, gives out loans for infrastructure. Uh, the big difference is it offers very low interest rates on these loans, uh, to, uh, which mostly go to state and local governments because they own the infrastructure. And as I said, it, that, that operation, that loan operation works just like a commercial bank. And then finally, uh, the big secret sauce of this bank is that because we're lending $5 trillion uh, over a 10-year period, and we're putting great paying uh, wages into people's pockets and the respending, and all the inputs are by America only into the production, it's really going to supercharge American growth. Um, we, that happened the last time we had such a bank, the, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, and it'll happen again today. So with that higher growth rate, we'll have better tax receipts coming into federal coffers, into state and local coffers to repay back the loans. That's it in a nutshell. Okay, that's great. I do have one question on, um, so the 2% is paid to the people who buy the, buy, I mean, they sell their bonds basically in exchange for stock. Now, can they sell their stock? Would there be a liquid market for this stock? Uh, probably probably not. Um, that, that's the case for other entities that are sponsored, government-sponsored entities like this. For example, the federal home loan banks 
has a similar system, uh, and they 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 do stock swaps for uh, for capitalization, and they're not open on the open market, so probably not. All right, so that's great. Could you also tell us about the bill that's the, just passed the Senate and yeah. why the, we we've had uh, finally an infrastructure summer, <laughs> let's call it that, uh, which culminated after five years of the Senate trying to come up with a plan for how to finance infrastructure through the federal budget. And it kept, uh, the, the hangup kept being, if it's this size, then how do we pay for it? And uh, Republicans that were on this bipartisan committee did not want to raise taxes to pay for it. Uh, and so the, the, the size of the infrastructure spending kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller uh, because of this difficulty of, of, of ways to pay for it. What's now uh, ended up is that the uh, revised, uh, revised bipartisan plan, which was passed by the Senate, is only going to be $550 billion of new money over the next five years for infrastructure. And that's going to fall way, way short of what we need. Our estimate of what we need is a five trillion dollars of new money above and beyond what the what's the normal spending. And where did we get that figure? We got two point six trillion of it from the American Society of Civil Engineers, who've gone through sixteen different categories uh, and said that these are our spending needs just to bring things up to a state of good repair. One point two trillion for uh, surface transportation. 1.1 trillion for water infrastructure, and then some other uh, additional things too. So you can see that in the, the big picture of things, 500 billion is not going to be anywhere near enough to cover all of the infrastructure. And it's way woefully short on things like repairing lead service lines and water. We need 1.1 trillion just for water infrastructure. And maybe out of that 200 uh, billion might be for the lead service lines. This new bill only has 15 billion in it for lead service lines, not going to be anywhere near enough. And then in addition, it has no money in it for high speed rail. Uh, it has a little bit for affordable housing, but not much. Uh, so altogether, we need $5 trillion. This, we're still $4.5 trillion short if this bill uh, ultimately gets passed. And so with $500 billion in capitalization, for people who don't know or don't remember, a depository bank is allowed to leverage at 10 to 1. So that means you can get $5 trillion out of $500 billion. Liquidity from somewhere, but the proposal is deposits or with any luck, borrow from the Federal Reserve. We'll see if that, that works out. Or issue uh, bonds. Yeah, or issue bonds. Well, that's uh, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation did issue bonds, and most of the bonds were bought by the federal government, but I don't see that happening now because they're so far in debt. So, yeah. There's lots and lots of liquidity out there in the banking system right now. Uh, there's some, for example, some $2 trillion, uh, Dr. Hubbard went and added it up <laughs> uh, just in deposits. And a lot of these banks don't know what to do with their excess liquidity. They can't lend it out because the economy is too poor to lend it for hard investment projects what essentially they've been doing is sort of gambling with it on the stock market. And, and that's caused all kinds of asset bubbles. So we're not on good, solid financial ground in our economy right now. And then there are some competitor proposals, other proposals, and uh, you did an excellent presentation on why those are insufficient as well. So I wondered if you could go over those. 
Sure. There are um, five different proposals for, quote, banks uh, to finance infrastructure uh, that are in the House right now. One of them has also got a companion bill in the Senate. And uh, ours is distinctly different from these others. First of all, these others are structured more like revolving funds. They're not true banks. Ours is the only one that is a true bank. Uh, the second big difference is there; those others are very much orders of magnitude too small. Uh, for example, the infrastructure financing authority that was briefly a part of the bipartisan plan but was dropped from the plan, that bill uh, only uh, would provide $210 billion over the next 10 years for infrastructure projects. Uh, and, and as I said, what we need is $5 trillion. Uh, if we're going to do high-speed rail, if we're going to do all these 21st century projects, we need a much, much bigger price tag than that. The other bills uh, similarly are in that range of 200 to, to, to $500 billion, not anywhere near enough. A second big difference uh, of our bank compared to the other four proposals is we don't go to the budget and ask for money to get the bank started. As I said, uh, we go to the private sector and ask would they like to invest in the bank. Uh, on a net basis, we're asking for nothing, zero, nothing from the federal budget no new spending from the federal budget, no new taxes, uh, no new deficit spending, and our deficit is becoming a real big problem uh, in today's world. Uh, so it, the others are asking for in the order of billions of dollars to get their banks started. And then a final big uh, difference is that our bill does not require public-private partnerships. A couple of the other proposals do require them. And Dr. Hubbard is going to go over in just a minute why these P3 projects are not a good idea for covering all of our infrastructure needs. Yeah, so I guess we could jump over to Dr. Hubbard then. Before you go on to Dr. Hubbard, I just wanted to say one more thing. Any information that your viewers might like to hear, uh, if they want to learn more about the National Infrastructure Bank proposal, they can go to our website at nibcoalition.com. They can ask for a presentation for their groups of people if, they're, if they have a group uh, that might be interested in learning more about it. There's an open letter that any of your viewers can sign to ask Congress to pass this bill or to get updates on the project. And finally, um, you can call or write to your congressman. This is really a grassroots effort to support this. It's not going to happen if we just leave Congress alone to its own devices to pass it. We're really going to need uh, folks that are desperate for infrastructure in their area. And then in addition, would like to see better paying jobs in America and, and a plan for restructuring our economy. It's, this doesn't just build infrastructure, but it's a fundamental restructuring of the American economy coming out of it. Uh, and if they would like to help and participate with that, they can go to our, uh, our website and um, learn some more and sign up for the letter. So thanks very much. Okay, thank you. Um, so, Dr. Howard, I wonder if you could uh, run us through public-private partnerships and why it's really not the way we want to go. So, basically, let me f first start because I'm not sure the listeners will uh, know what a PPP is and the, the definition actually is variable. So, let me start a little bit there and then I can go through why they work in some cases but that's only a very small percentage. So first off, uh, project creation for infrastructure, whether it's hard roads, bridges, you know, buildings or soft, um, as it's now being called, daycare, childcare, healthcare, things like that is basically the same. And it starts with the design process, which also includes planning, which is basically 
What am I going to build? Why do I need to build it? And where am I going to build it or create it? And then financing, which here is sort of the loose term and our, our general term, whether it's uh, grants or loans, whether I have to pay the money back or not, then build and then operation and the maintenance. And it's known usually by the letters D, F, B, O, M. Uh, but you can see other combinations because everyone's got their own particular uh, mix. So traditionally, government does what's known as design, bid, build. And they hire a contractor for each one of the, the steps of the DBFOM process. And this is so if I'm a designer, I can't write a spec that only I or one of my cohorts um, can then apply for. Because uh, when you don't have that requirement, there's, uh, as you can imagine, with billions at stake, there's lots of corruption and people write things that, that only they can then uh, uh, bid on. Uh, but as then you can also imagine this creates a time consuming process. Um, uh, inflation in construction actually runs higher than standard um, consumer inflation. The engineering uh, uh, news has a, a heavy construction and a building construction inflation index, and it usually runs a, a, a percent or two higher than uh, standard consumer inflation. And uh, so this tends to run at about uh, 40 to 100% or more per decade, depending on what it is you're trying to do for very large what are known as mega projects, which are over a billion dollars. So then basically, so if I'm an agency and I'm trying to build something, you can run into problems, which is I don't have the expertise or the capacity to do the project. I don't have the staff hours or I don't have that, that knowledge in-house. And I also don't have either the money or the political capital to get it built. And many times as an agency, you, need, you know something needs to be done, but you can't get the political uh, willpower to have it uh, executed. Um, so then uh, exactly uh, private, public private partnership having now talked about where projects come from and how they're done is basically two or more of those stages, the design, build, finance, operate and uh, maintain, at least two or more of those are done by the same contractor or group of contractors if it's uh, um, an organization. Um, and so they also make uh, contribute private equity. And so this is where the true PPP definition uh, differs from a lot of loose ones is that basically the contractors assume both risk of creating the project because they've got more than one step. And then they also are putting in cash up front. And this is why Congress now is interested in PPPs and why they're in some of many of the infrastructure, there's a PPP component in the current infrastructure um, uh, legislation uh, is because they're hoping to get money. And so here, just in terms of definitions, uh, funding is grants. And so normally, if you're, say, a road agency, you get money from the U.S. Department of Transportation, USDOT, and that's a grant. And so you get so much per year, depending on what it is you're doing, whereas they have many different financing programs where you get some money up front, you have to put more in yourself, and then you have to repay the loan. So here, this is traditional financing, which means loans, and it cannot be, it has to be repaid. And so to be very clear, PPPs are not funding their financing. In other words, the uh, private en enterprise has to make money. Businesses, uh, the classical definition of a business is go find a customer and keep it, keep them. And so uh, because if a corporation doesn't make money, they go out of business. So the advantages, so why, why do you do this? Um, is that basically uh, many agencies and also the federal government, there's a, there are debt limits or debt to revenue limits and PPPs are off the book. 
And so um, if you are basically uh, owe them some money, which um, uh, you'll pay or you basically incur a debt, they're putting in equity. And so you'll pay that over time. That doesn't count towards your classical definitions of debt. So it's a way of, of uh, getting money without um, putting it into the debt um, revenue equation. Um, there are political roadblocks, as I said, you can't get the money. Um, there are also, as I said, in, internal costs. So uh, sometimes the organization um, has experts and they wind up doing mundane things. When I was at the Metropolitan Water District, they had 31 uh, contractors who uh, were all in charge, uh, charge of rodent and uh, weed removal, which if you have um, over 100,000 acres spread across the countryside, uh, keeping the weeds down and the rodents down is quite an adventure. And unfortunately, they had very expensive staff doing this because they didn't have any low-level staff to do it. And so eventually, they bundled that all up and handed it out to one agency and reduced their costs because they didn't have to manage them 31 contracts. And that bring uh, gets us to what's something that's known as VFM, capital V, little f, and big M, value for money or return on investment, is that you're able to uh, leverage um, basically everything and reduce your costs, reduce the time, reduce your risks. So um, back to again now, why is the federal government so, um, and those in Congress so um, interested in these? As Alfeca showed, the um, US infrastructure deficit, at least the one that people talk about from the ASCE is, was 1.9, then 2.1, now it's $2.6 trillion. That's every four years it's been jumping. Um, but actually, in reality, it's much larger than that. And as you might remember her saying, they have 16 categories, but it turns out there are many more that aren't included, including things like groundwater depletion. 50% of US food right now comes from um, aquifers that are depleting uh, and under uh, drought stress. Putting the water back will cost uh, 10 to 20 times what it costs to pump it out. Imagine what that'll do to your um, uh, food bill. And when you put that in deferred maintenance and you wind up with somewhere between four to seven and a half trillion dollars, and some people in Congress even believe the number may be above $10 trillion, that's just to fix what's um, broken. And that's after 40 to 60 years of austerity. On top of that now, as Alfaka also mentioned, we have PAYGO, which means you can't add anything to the federal deficit without first finding either a tax or a tax cut. So what, what is this? This is like running a business where you can't borrow money to try and increase your revenue. And so this um, is actually, I think, highly destructive to the, to the country, the federal government in the country, but those are the rules. And uh, then there's also a financial check, uh, sector cheering squad who's saying, we can save you, we can save you, come let us lend you money and we'll make everything better. And there are trillions of dollars of corporate profits stashed offshore, offshore and they're basically looking for um, a contract, long-term contract with government, which basically can turn into a government enforced monopoly for 15 to 30 years or more. And uh, then of course, the you know every business would love to have that kind of situation. But you have to remember, PPPs are not free money. You have to pay it back. And the, the public is ultimately responsible for that debt. So some of the issues of when you start doing a PPP is that the general return on an equity for the investors is somewhere to 10 and 15%. Where does that number come from? That comes from the fact that in terms of international finance, I can go find opportunities 
that provide at least 10 to 15% return on investment per year. So as the money sort of sloshes around from best investment to best investment, obviously the highest return and lowest risks go first, but you still have to get up into that neighborhood of 10 to 15% return on investment. Otherwise, you're not going to attract the capital. So in other words, if I have a dollar to invest, why should I put $1 in that'll give me only a penny or two pennies back per year when I can go offshore and find uh, 10 to 15 cents? And the answer is no one will do that. So some of the other problems with PPPs is it's an adversarial relationship. And so when the government puts a project together, whether it's inefficient or not, it's basically trying to maximize the public benefit for dollar. But what a PPP is trying to do, it's trying to maximize the profit for its investors. And if there are any savings, then they basically go to the investor. And if there's a failure, then the government, as you remember, is always the ultimate person who's on the hook. So then they're the ones who are responsible if the PPP fails. And as an example um, of the kinds of things that can go wrong in a PPP, where you're basically farming out everything to uh, an organization and you give them a specification and if there are mistakes in it, that'll make them money, they won't, you'll never hear about it. And um, so uh, let me see the, uh, and sort of, and part of that is 700 page contracts, which are impenetrable. Part of the crowd that went out and put um, the third world under debt is now going around and has kept it there for decades, is now looking for something new to do. And they're now looking at U.S. infrastructure as a way to uh, increase their profits. And so they're, they're looking to take all that cash they have offshore and use their complex econometrics uh, procedures to try and get uh, agencies into long-term projects. And the longer the contract, so if you're going to, say, privatize your water system for 30 or 40 years, the higher the risk. So not all PPPs are bad. There have been successes and historically the Erie Canal was brought in uh, um, under uh, budget and um, uh, early. Uh, and of course, also the Transcontinental Railway was one of the first uh, major PPPs in the United States. Um, things like concessions, um, uh, insect control and trash removal, many cities contract that with waste management or some of the other uh, big uh, organizations in that field. And the reason why those works is because the employees only take a few years to train. And if you change employees, you don't lose 30 years worth of knowledge that's going out the door. Whereas if you have a water system um, and you have poor hiring standards, you keep losing the knowledge of how to run the agency more efficiently, or when you take it back over, they all leave. And so uh, this is why there are hidden costs in PPPs. In terms of uh, are they uh, less expensive, the Congressional Budget Office has evaluated them and said basically the cost of money from uh, private equity versus the government with its inherited inefficiencies because they're trying to prevent corruption is nearly identical. Um, but that said, there's not a lot of, uh, especially for rural areas, there's not a lot of capacity for extra PPP debt in terms of water systems. Um, there are 52,000 water systems across the United States, but only, only 880, about 1.7% um, have been privatized, um, indicating again that PPPs are only good for about 1% to 2% of all infrastructure. Another example are roads. Um, there was a Brookings Institute study that showed that 61% of all roads break even or lose money. And so where are you going to get 10 to 15% money out of that? You can't. But what some agencies do is they have a new bridge or a new tunnel, and they'll say, okay, we'll, we'll run a toll on that, and we'll have a PPP build it and operate it for 30 years. 
But what you've done without realizing it is you could have basically done that project too for a little bit more upfront and then had the revenue from that and then helped fund parts of your system that are not making money. And so when you privatize it and farm those profits out for 30 years, now you have to go raise taxes elsewhere. So there's even though the PPP itself may show that it was beneficial, that there's actually uh, can be a net loss. So you said that the cost for the government was roughly identical. Are you talking about not counting what private people, you know, the that's the cost of that's their cost of equity. In other words, just looking at the cost of money from private companies versus the cost of money, including the inherent delays from governments. And then they've said they were basically the same. They weren't talking about projects, which I'm about to talk about, that go bad and everyone sues each other or they fail and the government winds up on the hook for uh, millions or billions of dollars. It's mostly just the cost of cash. And so the, the idea is that the private um, capital says, oh, we're cheaper. And the answer is actually, no, you're not. About the cost of capital versus the, um, from including delays in government versus the cost of equity or capital from private enterprise were roughly equivalent. And so they were saying that the two processes wind up matching. But what happens with PPPs is that when they go bad, the government is on the hook and there can also be a large back-end cost, like a mortgage with a balloon payment, which I'll get here in a second. You said that the, uh, companies can go offshore and get 10 to 15%, but I've heard the pension funds want 7% and they can't even get that. I mean, they're lucky to get 5% or whatever. So I just wondered if what kind of investments you're thinking of is that. You're right. So part of it is the volume. Um, there's a, um, a distribution. So the 10 to 15% with uh, lower risk goes first. And then if you have basically billions to um, invest, then you start sliding back down the hill with higher risk and lower return. This was more, I think, historical. Um, the report that I took that from was from around 2010, 2011. I have to admit, I have not seen a report of what the current capital um, mix is. Okay. And then there have been some spectacular failures. So. Okay. So going up the, the food chain. So um, there's basically I-69 in Indiana, which was a, a great valued PPP. They were going to save an enormous amount of money for a long-term maintenance contract. But what happened was, is that the um, uh, traffic projections were inflated for them to get the um, project. And so... Uh, what happened was is they went bankrupt because the projections were low. And so then the government had to take over at a cost of um, uh, $350 to about $550 million with the project uh, two years behind schedule. And so uh, what looked like a, a very good thing up at the start was ballyhooed across all of the, the infrastructure press and the financial industry turned in into uh, a turkey. There's a South Bay Expressway. Uh, in San Diego, uh, SR-125 that went bankrupt again because of uh, low uh, traffic on the, the toll road and ended it with uh, many uh, lawsuits. And they actually had to cancel the uh, improvement for uh, I-805, which you know anything about the San Diego area always has tremendous traffic delays to uh, pay for the, the toll road uh, loss. Um, the London Underground in 1998 contracted with three different PPP uh, groups to rebuild the, the subway, which had been run under austerity for quite a while. Those all went uh, bankrupt. 
and the, the cost to uh, the city of somewhere between 175 to 500 million. And just as a, a rule of thumb, when I talked to with one of the aid consultants who was uh, trying to clean up after the PPP said the London Underground had figured looking at the amount of deferred maintenance that it would take them seven years of normal operation to clean up the mess for every one year of austerity that the organization had been run under. So that gives you an idea how underspending, uh, how badly it affects an agency. And then um, in general, private water systems, Food and Water Watch has looked at water systems that are privatized and their costs go up an average of 33%. And sewer systems, the costs go up uh, 66%. And so then we have the uh, four biggest uh, PPP failures, at least in the United States. So starting with Three Mile Island, which was basically... Um, uh, a company was uh, uh, hired to run the Three Mile Island nuclear uh, facility and uh, running it to take advantage of a small tax incentive. Well, it should have been down and they had to keep it up for a certain number of hours to get that small tax advantage. And of course, the thing partially melt, melted down about 50% of the core because uh, they had a problem and then it ran away. And that cost was $1 to $2 billion. In California, the power crisis from 2001, 2002, the uh, California power was deregulated. This was a form of PPP and privatization. And the idea is they were going to use the power of the federal, or excuse me, the marketplace to reduce costs. And instead, the cost of power went up by a factor of three times because we didn't have the grid. That's one of the things that, uh, that the um, NIB bill will pay for is a, a better grid. And uh, at the Metropolitan Water Districts, our cost for power went up $130 million in one year because of uh, Enron manipulating the market. Uh, actually put the uh, U.S. into a recession. And if you remember when uh, President Bush took over, he said the economy looked worse than they originally thought. That was because of the uh, manufactured power crisis in California and brought in a, a mild recession across the country. Uh, the Deepwater Horizon, which was a $3 billion uh, oil well, um, in the Gulf of Mexico to uh, save $100,000 on a, a test that would have checked whether the well was properly cemented closed or not was skipped to save a little bit of money on that $3 billion bill. And uh, the, of course, the um, well blew out and the cost of cleanup is now above $61 billion. And uh, currently the ultimate privatization fiasco just occurred this year, which in Texas and um 1970 uh, took over the power grid and sort of uh, gave it to an agency and disconnected it more or less from the rest of the U.S. power grid. And during that time, prices rose 60% faster than across the United States. And uh, since 2004, Texans have actually paid $28 billion more for their power than everyone else. Um, there was actually a freeze in 2011, which prompted many reports warning ERCOT um, which is the Texas power operator, um, that they could suffer catastrophic failure if there's another cold snap. They didn't bother to require any of the power companies to spend the money to weatherize. And then, of course, on uh, February 10th, the, uh, there was a cold snap. And for two weeks, most of Texas uh, was without water and power, 4.5, excuse me, not most, but 4.5 million homes. Um, and at a cost of two to $300 billion and two to 700 deaths. And so, what happens is over and over again, where there are these large failures from individual roads to major systems, um, the PPP crowd says, oh, that's just an aberration overall, it does well. And it does do well in a very limited area. But once you take PPPs and expand them out into systems and make long-term contracts, 
the um, results are at best mixed. And as you can see, very large uh, fiascos can occur that cost enormous amounts of, of uh, money and actually can kill people. Yeah, that's very interesting. And uh, you had also talked about what the costs are of not upgrading now. In other words, uh, letting, your, letting your infrastructure fail is so right. much more expensive than keeping it up. So right. that's why you know, we need to do this now. We can't just keep putting it off. Yeah, so the cost of austerity over time, unfortunately, I can't show a slide on the uh, radio, but sort of imagine a, um, a slope that just keeps on going up and up and up until it's vertical. So it's almost like a quarter section of a, uh, um, a circle. So that's about what reinforced concrete looks like when you withhold maintenance from it. So there's uh, something called the Sitter's Law. His name is spelled D-E-S-I-T-T-E-R. If you go look him up on the internet, you'll discover relativity. And that's not him. His dad was uh, a famous uh, compatriot of Einstein, but he was a famous civil engineer. And after about 20 years, he realized that um, every five years you withhold maintenance on reinforced concrete costs you five times what you thought you saved. So after five years, if you've saved $1, it's actually cost you $5. And if you do that for 10 years, you're now up to 25, 15 years, you're up to $125. And so what this means is, is that for every dollar that you, we would underspend on maintenance and infrastructure, it's going to cost us two to $4 on the back end, sort of like that balloon mortgage. And so right now that's somewhere between 125 to $200 billion a year that we're spending. And any infrastructure package that um, doesn't provide at least 125 to $200 billion a year in new money is actually making the hole deeper and it'll never get to the backlog because it's like you're um, you know, running a catch a train, but you're on a moving sidewalk that's going backwards. <laughs> and so that's going faster than the train is uh, pulling away from you. And so you'll never catch it. It seems to me we also have urgency because China is running circles around us and they're basically using it, you know, an infrastructure bank model where they issue the money, build the thing, and then the fees pay back the loan, which is what, you know, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation model. I'd like to point out that over the last 60 years, while we've been trying to finance infrastructure through the budget, our budget has gotten skewed off on paying for other things like healthcare, like military spending, and we're still running large deficits. In the $3.5 trillion plan uh, that's come out uh, now that the, the Congress will be considering, they've given uh, indications uh, in that plan of what the next 10 years would look like in the budget. And they have uh, huge escalations in things like interest on the debt will go up, uh, by 175%, military spending will go up by 15%, uh, education will go up by 35%, that's a good thing, we want that, uh, Medicare spending will go up by 95%, and guess what's going to happen to transportation spending? It will go down by 4%. So this means that infrastructure keeps getting squeezed out of the budget, which is why we need an independent organization just dedicated to providing secure long-term financing for infrastructure outside the budget. That was successful four times before. And we need to have such a permanent uh, institution to provide, otherwise we're, we're not going to be having, a, we're not going to be uh, financing our infrastructure over time. And, and the, Chinese, the Chinese have learned this lesson. They have two infrastructure banks that are copied on our own old model. 
Over the last 10 or 15 years, they've been able to use those to finance up to 27,000 miles of high-speed rail in their country. This has phenomenally restructured their entire economy. They built, they didn't build these uh, rail lines along any random routes. They actually built them along their Belt and Road Initiative to expand their trade with neighboring countries and also to get their workers from rural areas to centers of work and then back to their rural areas again. And we have before and after pictures which show what the economic development, how it changed. So just take a picture of the uh, areas over the high-speed rail lines, and you see fu- fundamentally how the geography and the uh, economic distribution of things changed. Don't forget, China was a poor country in 1970. Didn't even have enough food to feed its uh, population. And now it has just grown phenomenally, and a big impetus to this growth has been its investment in infrastructure. If we don't do the same, as Joe Biden says, the Chinese are going to eat our lunch. Now is really the time to, for us to invest in a, an institution that will provide long-term financing for infrastructure. Uh, thank you on that. Yeah, South Korea also was a poor country 50 years ago, like desperately poor. I gave a, spoke at a conference a couple of years ago there and wrote a, a high-speed train, <laughs> rail train. It was unbelievable. It's like incredibly smooth and nothing, you know, it didn't rattle, no noise. And you get, got there in a flash. And then I came back to the East coast of the U S and rode our Amtrak. And I was actually afraid because the thing shook so much. It's like, is this train secure? It's like, and our, tra- I, our tra- train tracks here in the country, in this country are uh, uh, many of them over a hundred years old. They're even pitched in the wrong direction when they go around curves so that they can accommodate large freight uh, cars, uh, but not passenger rail. And the investment that is planned for the bipartisan uh, investment uh, infrastructure plan is to just kind of refurbish Amtrak around the, uh, around the edges, provides food service and things like that, but not fundamentally go after the problem that uh, the, the heaviest rail traffic is the Northeast Corridor. We can make lots of money. That, that's the only corridor of Amtrak that makes lots of money. And instead of investing fundamentally in high-speed rail that restructures that whole line, we'll just be putting Band-Aid fixes on it. And we need, we need fundamentally to put more rail in our mix in our infra- infrastructure mix right now, our transportation mix, uh, to in order to save on fuel costs, traffic congestion. We have we waste billions and billions of dollars CO2 going into the air uh, because people are stuck in traffic. And we fundamentally can fix this, but we have to have a way to pay for it. And the congressional plan, while it's good, it's a little bit in the right direction. It's not anywhere near enough to fundamentally fix our transportation and congestion problems, but a, a national infrastructure bank can. Yeah, so, thank so, you. Uh, so uh, one of the things that PAYGO does is essentially, again, which is pay as you go, which you have to find the funds or cut. You have to raise taxes or cut. So as um, taxes for corporations and the wealthy have been cut and they receive the most money, that money all flows off mostly offshore. So there's no longer the investment in the United States that we need. Um, as, as you heard, you know, China's at about eight and a half percent. We're down at 2.2 through 2.2, 2.3 or 2.4 percent of uh, GDP. But what this does is it basically puts the foot a foot on the neck of capitalism. Is that if you're a business and you cannot ex, uh, you cannot expand many times without 
borrowing money so you can increase capacity. Indeed, this is what all the tax cuts were supposedly supposed to do, right? Give money to industry, they go out and build uh, factories and that'll hire people, they'll spend money and th that it's sort of like a um, uh, providing your own, creating your own wind. And that was the theory. What happened was all the money rushed offshore, built factories offshore, put four to uh, four and a half to six and a half million people out of work here and um, depressed uh, revenue. And so now what we're trying to do is fill in a 40 to 60 year hole and you can't do it without borrowing money. And so this has put what I call uh, the government or the US into what's known as a graveyard spiral. So those are not familiar with the term, people who get lost in clouds and planes almost invariably go into a left-hand bank and accelerate and spiral into, they hit the ground. And this is what's happening to the United States is because the cost of everything keeps getting larger. Why? Because it's so old and we can't afford to, we're not spending enough to even maintain what we've got, let alone build more to keep up with the competition, who again is accelerating away from us. And so this has put the country into a graveyard spiral well, where declining quality of infrastructure and its ability to um, help uh, produce income will continue to decline. That depresses revenue, which depresses uh, re, uh, repair and maintenance spending. And you get into this vicious cycle and eventually will go splat as a country. And so to get out of that, we need a different kind of mechanism to provide the cash to rebuild the infrastructure, which can then encourage growth. And uh, there's a number of FECA frequently uh, quotes, which is from the uh, USDOT, which is the federal highway system, which today would cost somewhere between four and eight billion dollars if you had to build it today, um, has returned three to seven dollars for every dollar that was invested. And so if we actually did the same with many of the things that we've talked about here, that would create a corresponding increase more than a dollar for dollar you would get back in terms of GDP growth. But without the bank, that won't occur. And thank you. Uh, so, Stephen, you, you wrote a paper. I know this isn't going to happen, but it's, a, you know, one of my pet ideas, too, is that if all else fails, there's we should be able to do just like Lincoln did and just go out there and issue the money. Of course, everybody will yell inflation. That's going to be inflationary. And, and prices are going up right now, but it's because of a supply chain, um, you know, blockages and shortages and uh, the money that has been printed went into the stock market and financialized things that don't produce things. But if you printed the money and had it go directly, like you said, it went offshore and, you know, hired the Chinese or whatever. But if you if you mandated that this money could only go for productive projects in the US, meaning basically a high-speed rail, that kind of thing, infrastructure, repairing, repairing all our bad infrastructure before it gets worse, that sort of thing. It seems to me that <laughs> that's the that was our idea in the first place. That was the American system. That's what the American colonists did. And well, we should be able to do that again. So there's um, um, something called modern monetary theory which without getting into it in detail as sort of an alternate view of how uh, governments and capitalism should work together. But the part that pertains here was actually already been done. After the uh, 2008 uh, subprime crisis, the Federal Reserve printed, I think, um, if I've got the number right, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I felt it was it $4 billion in, in um, $4 trillion in bonds for quantitative e uh, equalization? 
That's how uh, much their their um, books went up by. Yes. Yeah, four point three uh, trillion. And so basically, um, if you have um, factors of production, which in basically people, material, and factories. So the people to do stuff, the material that they're going to use, and what you know, the the uh, manufacturing equipment, idle. You basically can print money to employ the people up to about 80% of capacity. Once you get past that point, you start funding inefficiencies. And so it's like, if you put a dollar in, do you get a dollar out? And the answer is maybe not as you get close to complete capacity, but you can actually print the money and increase growth without increasing inflation. Because when uh, the Fed did quantitative easing, um, there are quite a few inflation hawk um, uh, publications who screamed this was gonna literally cause the rapid collapse of the entire country within just a few short years. And actually, if you go and look at the, uh, uh, there's something called FRED, the Federal Reserve of St. Louis, you can put in, go to Google, type in FRED, and then like inflation or something, and you'll you'll see they have all of the data for the um, from the Federal Reserve System. And basically, you can look at inflation, and there was almost no inflation, even though they printed $4.3 trillion worth of bonds, which they used to keep liquidity in the system and to keep the um, economy going. And so that's now a debt we have to pay. But if we just erase that debt, it wouldn't really affect the economy because they didn't have to sell the bonds. They could have just basically printed the money. But what happens is, is that it's not a panacea. And if you use that everywhere, it'll fail because eventually you'll, you will create inflation. But basically, I don't see that process happening until there's a, a large scale collapse because you simply, the people who believe fervently Adam Smith first, last, and always, you won't be able to pry that literally until it's out of their, their cold, dead hands. So one, one other factor that's important uh, with respect to printing money is where is the money, where does the money go? Uh, all that $4 trillion uh, that the Fed printed did not go into the real economy. Uh, if it went into the real economy, then we would have seen inflation. And an example of where we, we have seen inflation is the recent stimulus packages that were a fiscal, they were a federal uh budget uh, endeavor, uh, not, a, not a Federal Reserve endeavor, that did go into people's pockets and they used it to spend uh, on everyday things and that has, uh, pick, that has ticked up inflation. So uh, in, in fact, the quantitative easing, the $4 trillion, went to banks who used this to provide loans to speculators to speculate on assets. So asset prices did escalate. So there's two different measures of inflation. One is the consumer price index, which measures uh, pickup in demand for real goods, and then asset prices for things like uh, the stock market, housing market. There are certain indicators that show that they're all in bubbles, and they're all in bubbles simultaneously now at the same time. And this is causing real instability in the financial market. So it really matters where you direct money. If you're going to print money, where you direct money. The beauty of this bank is it directs it into infrastructure spending that improves the efficiency of the economy. Uh, trucks move faster. Um, there's less uh, um, um, bad water that is e that can even impact businesses, let alone you know poison children uh, through lead line pipes. Um, all this improves the efficiency of the economy and economic modeling. My favorite models are by the University of Maryland. They did all the studies for the American Society of Civil Engineers reports. Uh, and what they show is that if you have 
selective investment in infrastructure that boosts the productivity of the economy, then you don't wind up with inflation because the economy grows, productivity grows, profits by businesses rise, and uh, then you don't, even if, the, even if wages tick up a little bit, overall, you don't have CPI inflation. I wonder about that. In theory, you should be able to give people money and they, you know, if people want more shoes, then the shoemaker produces more shoes and the prices should remain stable. But that hasn't happened. Why is that? I suppose because of shortages, because it's hard to get people to go back to work after they've been off for a year. And well, we, we did. They did not demand shoes. My just an anecdotal. My my contractor who does repairs on my house and next door too uh, says that he he can't keep up with the business right now. Everybody used their stimulus checks to go out and do it, home improvements in their houses, and that's that's led to the the tick up in the inflation. But it will not last. Let me tell you, this is this was like a punch bowl, uh, which uh, is going to run out. So the Congressional Budget Office uh, forecasts that the growth for, uh, and these growth uh, estimates are being lowered even as we speak right now, uh, that the growth for um, uh, this year could be around 6%, for next year could be around 3%, and then after that, it will taper way off as the effect of that stimulus uh, wears off and we will be back down to 1.1% per year growth after that. So uh, we'll need another, uh, even, even if we don't uh, think about infrastructure and a bank right now to f- finance it, we are going to need something over the long haul to, in- to ensure that there is concerted good investment in our economy uh, to keep growth rates up. Otherwise, they're going to slack way down again. And those 1.1% is the lowest level recorded of, uh, of, of GDP growth outside of a recession. So that just goes to show you how low it'll be. So just to, to add something here, I, when I was answering your question, I don't want to leave the impression, as Alfeca correctly observed, that um, printing money and dumping it into the economy you know, would be great until you see an inflation spike, is that absolutely you have to direct it somewhere. So especially if you print money and people go buy flat panels that come from um, Asian manufacturing companies. Mm-hmm. Now what you've done is you've just basically financed new flat panels and those don't really have any tremendous social benefit beyond the old flat panel that they had. And so as an example, so yes, if it goes into infrastructure and the creation of long-term jobs, now you're doing something. If it goes into frivolous consumer goods or financial ex- um, uh, speculation, then you're doing either nothing or you're actually hurting yourself. So you have to be careful. And again, it's not a panacea. Right. If you're buying shoes from China, it doesn't help. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much. This has been really, really interesting. Um, Do you all have things you'd like to add or wrap up with? Just to say that uh, if everybody's interested in really improving our economy, we're going to have to shake Congress a little bit here because they're in their rut of thinking they could do this through the through through the budget. And I think we've substantially proven that they simply can't. And this summer is an example of the fact that they simply can't. We're going to need an infrastructure bank. Uh, and every single person, that's not going to happen except with a grassroots push. Everybody call up their congressman and say they want HR 3339 uh, and uh, co-sponsored, endorsed, passed, and get this legislation done so that we can restructure our economy, have better jobs with full benefits uh, to help uh, not only 
fix fix the damn potholes, as Governor uh, of Michigan said, but um, uh, get the lead pipes out of the water, truly. Uh, build high-speed rail. Let's look like a 21st century country instead of a backwards one uh, and, uh, and not be stuck for hours and hours and hours in traffic jams. So all this can be done, new schools, new parks, everything can be done, but we'll need an infrastructure bank to ensure that the financing is available. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much, Alfredo. <laughs> and uh, Stephen? Yes, just that there's sort of a world of tomorrow that's just within our grasp. So we can have high-speed rail, as you say, that's just like um, we see in the Asian countries or in Europe, and actually almost every other country except the United States. Um, we're now within the reach of uh, flying vehicles that um, can you know, significantly reduce urban um, congestion and also can part, bring parts of rural America who are currently withering and dying because people are moving to urban centers. But if you can hop on a, a flying vehicle and uh, commute, so now uh, remote rural regions can act as bedroom communities and they become viable again. Um, so there's, uh, and you know, we haven't talked about broadband for both rural regions and for uh, urban regions where people don't can't afford to get connected, and as a result, they are in a continually losing situation for themselves and especially their children, who are now put at a, a continual disadvantage. They're running into the wind, and if they are able unable to get a good job, guess what? The the people who have money wind up picking up the tab for that. So this, there's this future that's waiting out there. And what's standing in the way is basically this approach that we have to do it either on budget or we can't have another mechanism. Um, and it's very limited. And as a result, the United States' future will be limited. And as I mentioned also, the cost of the uh, federal highway system, if you built it today, somewhere between four and $8 trillion. Imagine trying to get that through Congress if we can't even get $1 trillion. But try and imagine the United States today without its, its uh, highway system through both the federal and, and the state uh, highways. And we simply would, could not be, we would not be anywhere the economic giant we are today. And that's because they're basically standing on the shoulders of the people who built that. And so today we need to contribute to tomorrow so that the future of America is every bit as great as it's past. And that's not going to happen with the, our, our way we're going, but there is a way to do it. And this is one of the engines that will get us there. Oh, thank you so much. That's really excellent thinking. So thank you for talking to us. I've been speaking with Alfeka Machardi and Dr. Stephen Hubbard, who are on the advisory board of the National Infrastructure Bank Coalition, and their website is nibcoalition.com, and there's a great deal of information there. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown.